Good morning. Isn't that video spot on, right? Like, I laughed so hard the first time I watched it. It's nine minutes long, and it took me forever to figure out where uh, I needed to cut it off. Um, so I highly recommend going and watching the rest, because we just got three minutes there. So I would say, for me, I, I drift between, on any given day, like the home office guy and the binge watcher. And I would say I'm always the quarantine 15 pounder. Um, anyways, <laughs> congratulations on surviving week seven of our shared collective experience. I hope that you're celebrating another week of health and safety. Um, but I do realize that probably all of us are experiencing various degrees of sanity right now. It seems like for me anyway, it's an hour by hour evaluation of my mental state. Uh, I've started losing track of what day it is and how long it's been since I've showered or put on pants that didn't incorporate some kind of elastic. <laughs> uh, I started, I've started longing for things that I never thought I would miss. Um, like what, I, what would I give right now to just walk into a restaurant and be told that it was in an hour and a half wait for a table? It sounds like a dream, right? Or um, a tear fell from my eye the other day when I got a text from my dentist saying that they had to cancel my appointment, which was scheduled for May 18th. Uh, but this was the worst of all. I got, uh, uh, we got a renewal notice um, for our license plates from the DMV the other day, and it's terrible. My only option is to do it online. It's like, just let me take my number and wait in that overly humid waiting room for two and a half hours. Please, just let me do it. It just feels like time doesn't matter. It's like, it's like it isn't moving at all. And I don't know if I've ever felt this kind of affinity for time. Um, I used to wish it would slow down, and now I just wish it would move. Um, this must be what, this must be what a, a dormant tree in winter feels like, right? Like just waiting for the cold to move on for the day that our leaves can blossom again. Do you feel that way? Like just stalled? trying to be patient, wondering when is it going to warm up and, and when is the light going to shine through? And this is an incredibly surreal time. I do suppose that one of the most redeeming pieces of all of this is that I'm, maybe like many of you, are, I'm absorbing a ton of content. I'm reading way more than normal, and Lord knows I'm watching way more TV. Like, what else is there to do after the kids go to bed? Am I right? It's... It's a time such as this, one might say, that Netflix was created, right? I'm so thankful for the amount of access and the abundance of stories that we have to digest right now. There's just so much content to take in, and it's all at our fingertips. And there's, there's no feeling like any of it's a priority. We're going to have the time to get through it all. We are going to finish Netflix. We're going to watch all of it. <laughs> I wonder if one of the reasons why we're so drawn to the streaming services, right, like HBO and Hulu and Netflix, um, is, well, of course, it's because of the nostalgia of Harry Potter, for watching it for the 15th time, or the anticipation of finishing Little Fires Everywhere, or the great mystery of whether or not Carol Baskin actually did it. I wonder if we're drawn to all this is because good TV and good movies takes us into a new world. Right. It's, it's easy to get lost in Middle Earth or Narnia or the United Center circa 1998 because we're longing for a new story right now. We're longing for our story to move and, and progress. 
this holding pattern has pushed pause on so many different things. And even if you're one of the crazy people who's actually enjoying this time of rest and pause, there's still, there's still an eeriness about all of it, right? Like all that isn't happening. The canceled sports, the shuttered summer camps, the postponed weddings, the, the virtual birthday parties. We're in this holding pattern. We're stuck in the middle between life as it was with dentist appointments and long lines at Silver Beach Pizza and whatever is going to look like next, whatever is going to come. That's, that's the strange paradox about all this. This unprecedented, unexpected time has pushed pause on all things unexpected. There doesn't seem to be anything surprising throughout our days. We're just stuck in the middle. It's a great song, right? It's beautiful. And a shout out to Savannah who recorded that in Atlanta. It's so cool. Um, so this is one of my favorite songs growing up. I, I loved punk rock music as a kid. I still do today. Whenever I write, I'm, I've got punk rock music playing in the background. But this song was definitely one of my favorites. Like, I know it's cheesy. I know it's this kitschy kind of one-hit wonder song. But when I was in sixth grade, when this song was first released by Jimmy Eat World, I remember screaming it in the back of the bus with my friends and playing it uh, in my CD Discman as I walked between classes. It had this contagious chorus that you couldn't help but shout along to. But then I heard the version that inspired uh, what you heard this morning from Mike and Savannah. Uh, it was by uh, a woman named Audrey Assad, who's, she's a Christian music artist who's known for her more uh, contemplative lyrics. And she released her own version last year of this classic punk rock anthem. She, she changed the tempo and she changed the key and she created space between the words. And for the first time, I heard the lyrics to a song that I'd listened to 10,000 times. I've been singing the words for years without ever hearing them. And for the first time, I heard the story of a person trying to figure out how to navigate a world that they didn't fit into, a world that didn't seem to make sense for them, a world that didn't seem like it was created for them. This, by the way, is, is a feeling I often have at Storyline. I hear songs for the first time uh, when they're molded into the story of our shared lives, of, of our shared community, and the good news that's flowing through it. With this song in particular, The Middle, it was totally unexpected. Punk music is supposed to be is it? It's not supposed to be contemplative. It's supposed to rock your face off. It's supposed to rage against the system. It's not supposed to make me think. But isn't that the beautiful thing about life? It's full of the unexpected and the unprecedented and the unlikely. And that's what makes it worth it. So for the next five weeks, Mike Gathright and I are going to try to create some space for what it is we're missing which ironically is that unexpected and that unlikely. You see, the Bible is full of unexpected stories that star unlikely heroes. Heroes like Jonah and Noah and Jacob and Miriam and Mary and Zephaniah and Elijah. People you would never expect to play even a supporting role, nonetheless be the star of their own Netflix docuseries. I'm so excited for this, and I'm not sure we've ever done anything like it before. Sure. We've done themes. We've done love and grace 
and identity, the boring stuff like that. But taking this deep of a dive into a classic Sunday school, these classic Sunday school stories, tales of unlikely heroes that many of us have heard a hundred times and seeing what could be hidden within them, well, that seems unprecedented for us. I'm especially excited for the music that's going to come out of this space. Mike Cook has been working on a version of Hero by Enrique Iglesias. It's going to blow your mind. So this morning, we're going to dive deep into the story of Esther. But first, let's take a look at the elements of what makes a story great. You see, every story shares the same seven elements. Every great story of our time has incorporated these pieces into their plot lines, from Homer's Odyssey to Tommy Boy, from Star Wars to Frozen 2. Every tale that we love embodies these seven traits. So here we go. First. Every story needs a hero. This is the main character, the person that the entire narrative revolves around. And in the best stories, these heroes are the least likely to actually be the hero. Allie and I have this ongoing debate about who this character or this hero is in the sitcom Friends. I think we finally come to some agreement about this after about a half a decade because the right answer is Monica. You can't change my mind. There's no dispute. The main character is, and always will be, Monica. Feel free to pause right now to have this debate, either with yourself or your partner. I would excuse the children first, as it could get pretty heated. Moving on. Secondly, the hero must have a problem. Something needs to happen that causes our hero to solve or find or fix or create. There must be an incomplete element that demands to be completed. And oftentimes, there's, it's more than one thing, right? So for example, in the classic tale Moana, which is available to stream 14 times a day on Disney+, we see our hero faced with the issue of dried up fishing grounds and the innate longing to venture off her family's island beyond the reef. Number three. The third element of a great story is that our hero is incapable of solving the problem on their own. They require a guide or a sage or a Jedi master to help them navigate the road ahead. Uh, in Friends, this is often Phoebe. In Moana, it's a combination of Hey Hey the Chicken or Moana's grandmother and Dwayne the Rock Johnson. And in Harry Potter, it's Dumbledore and Sirius Black. Uh, Regardless, we can all look back on our favorite stories and figure out pretty quickly who's playing this role as the guide. And I'm sure each of us can also look at our own story and remember the people in our lives who've helped us navigate pain and hardship with wisdom and grace. For instance, for Mike Gathright, that person is me. So I'm wondering, who is it for you? Comedy is so hard when you don't have an audience. Am I right? This is... This is difficult. The fourth piece of great stories is, is, the, is the plan, right? Uh, this is often conveyed through musical montage. There has to be an agreed upon way forward. It could be the map from the Goonies or the training sequence that Polly put Sylvester Stallone through in Rocky or any number of different things that you've seen in movies. And there has to be a spoken, invisible plan put in place by the hero and the guide for how the plan is going to be solved. Element number five, the hero has to take an action. We can't just come up with a plan. 
we've got to have a moment in the story where we move from dreams to implementation. It's fairly simple, right? Um, Tommy Callahan, for instance. Tommy and Richard Hayden can't just talk about driving around the Midwest selling Callahan auto parts to try and overcome Rob Lowe. They actually have to get in the car and do it. They have to take action. And that leaves us with elements six and seven, which are fairly simple. Our hero needs to know what success looks like, and they need to know what failure looks like. Luke Skywalker needs to know that if he succeeds in destroying the Death Star, the rebel force will live on to fight another day. But if he fails, the world as he knows it will come to an end. It's that simple. Great stories are that simple. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was an homage to all the parents out there who've been watching way too much Disney+. Plus. I just need you to know that I see you, and I'm with you, and we will get through this. Anyway, back to where we were. Great stories are that simple. It's a hero, a problem, a guide, a plan, an action, the knowledge of what success looks like, and the possibility of failure. And we know this, right? There might be some debate around how these elements are implemented in any given story, but there's no real controversy that they exist. And we know that because we see this play out over and over and over again in our everyday lives. We can look at our own timeline and see the sequence play out over and over and over again. Great stories are great because they're our stories. Overcoming adversity, solving a problem, living out a dream. Our lives are made out of these moments, and we fall in love with fantasy and adventure because it's part of who we are. I think that's why I love the Bible so much. It's a library of books chocked full of story after story of people like me overcoming their fears and hardships and shortcomings to fulfill their calling and make the world a better place. And I think there's another element that we're forgetting here. And I think that's because it's not necessarily exclusive to every great story, but I would say the best stories incorporate an element of sacrifice and altruism. The problem our heroes are trying to solve are not exclusively their own. You see, Luke isn't fighting the Empire for himself. He's trying to defeat Darth Vader to save humanity. Moana is trying to save her island from famine. Michael Jordan is trying to prevent the Looney Tunes from being exiled into slavery on Moron Mountain. <laughs> the best stories are ones where our heroes recognize that there's something bigger than themselves happening in the world. And they realize that they can play a role in reordering it back to the way things were supposed to be. These are the stories that fill the pages of the Bible person after person being called by God to go and love the world right again, to play their part in restoring things back to their ideal state. So there's this incredible story from the Old Testament about a woman named Esther. It's part of a section of the Bible known as the writings, which are these shorter vignettes uh, that sandwich between the history text of the Chronicles and the poetry of the Psalms. These writings were the legends or the myths that have been passed down from generation to generation, and then they were eventually recorded in the sacred text so that the readers could remember that those stories that brought them to where they are. 
So when we read the Bible, we have to remember that every word is loaded. Every word is purposeful and means something. Every author is trying to tell us something important, and they're trying to do it as concisely as possible. These were the stories that, that lived on. They weren't the only stories that shaped Jewish history, but these were the stories that were deemed the most critical to the larger narrative. So when we read the book of Esther, we have to have that in mind. The seemingly random story about a Persian queen is not just a cute little inspiring tale. It's a pivotal moment in the greater story of God's restorative work that's happening in the world. And God always did this through unexpected and unlikely heroes. And Esther is one of those heroes. So now, a little context. You know I got to go here. There's a ton of story, and as per usual, I'm running out of time. So I'm going to move quickly, so bear with me. The story of Esther takes place near the end of the Persian dynasty. The Babylonian Empire has transitioned through King Cyrus into the Persian Empire, and now Xerxes is the king over, the, over land that ranges from Turkey and Egypt all the way to the western boundaries of what is modern-day China and India. It was as big as an empire as the world had ever seen at that point. And within this, the Jewish people were once again slaves in the land that they had been gifted by God. This is one of the central themes of scripture, God keeping his promise to his people to restore the land he promised them. This story, however, takes place in the town of Susa, which would now be part of modern day Iran. And this is where we find Esther. She's living with her cousin Mordecai in Susa, hundreds of miles away from the land in Jerusalem, the land of her Jewish ancestors. And so the story begins with King Xerxes. He becomes unsatisfied with the way his queen, Queen Vashti, is treating him. So he goes to try to find a new one, like you do. Esther is brought into the palace of the king, along with many other young women from all over the region. And when, the, and when King Xerxes sees Esther, he finds her to be one of the most beautiful women he's ever seen. And so he points her his new queen almost right away. And she quickly earns his trust with the help of her cousin Mordecai by under, uncovering a plot to have the king killed. And now she not only has the king's eye, but she has his ear as well. So in just this short period of time, this Jewish slave girl in the Persian Empire has been elevated to one of the highest positions in the land, from slave to queen. And this is partly why this story stands out. She wasn't supposed to be there. This wasn't supposed to be her story. And yet, it was. Now, it's important to note that the king didn't know that Esther was Jewish. He was merely drawn in by her beauty, and he didn't ask any questions beyond that. So store that detail away from later, for later. And moving on, King Xerxes has a sidekick. His name is Haman. And Haman isn't a big fan of Esther's cousin Mordecai, nor the Jewish people which he belongs to. So Haman comes to the king with a plan for how to not only get rid of Mordecai, but to exterminate the entire Jewish people from the Persian Empire. That's how much Haman hated Mordecai. Another detail that you should save for later. So Haman comes to the king. And he doesn't mention Mordecai at all. Instead, he tells a story about how frustrated he is that the Jewish people have a different way of life and that they don't follow Persian customs and they refuse to assimilate the Persian culture. And he wants them gone. So 
the king grants him his wish. Haman now has authority to destroy the entire Jewish population by whatever means necessary. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, gets word of this, and so he writes to her and, and, and asks her for help. He's asking the queen of Persia for help. And at first, she's skeptical. She knows that even though she has some influence over the king, if she doesn't follow the rules of order and how to interact with him, it could end really, really badly for her. But Mordecai comes right back at her. He rebukes that hesitation, and he says this. This is from chapter 4, verse 14. He says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Isn't that beautiful? How often do we hesitate because of the boundaries that we perceive are in our way? Are in our way? But we forget that perhaps we're in this moment, that we're in the moment we're in precisely because we're the ones who can overcome it. I'm asking myself, how do I use whatever influence I have, whatever influence I've been given for a time such as this? So Esther comes up with a plan. She comes to the king and invites him and his buddy Haman to a banquet that she has prepared. Now that invitation goes right to Haman's head. He's going to dine with the queen. And so now with this newfound confidence, he puts another plan together for how he's going to get rid of Mordecai in a very public way. He already has the green light to go ahead and destroy all of the Jews in the Persian Empire, but he wants to use Mordecai as a spectacle. At this point, the story starts to read like a Michael Creighton novel. It's crazy. But because we're trying to keep it PG, this is not an ideal setting for me to get into all of these details necessarily. So I highly recommend going to read chapters 5 to 7 on your own because you're not going to believe how it turns out. But for the sake of time and appropriateness here, I'm going to try to get to some of the bullet points. First, Esther's plan is to invite King Xerxes and Haman to a banquet that she's prepared where she's going to reveal that she is actually a Jew and that Haman's plot is one that will destroy her entire nation. But in between her request or her invitation to Haman and the king, Xerxes has a dream in which he is called to honor Mordecai for his assistance in revealing the plot to have him killed. Remember that detail from earlier? So, be so before Esther's banquet, get this, Xerxes has his right-hand man, Haman, dress Mordecai in the king's best robe and jewelry and then parade him around the city declaring, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. <laughs> And who says the Bible is boring? Uh, this is like right out of Game of Thrones, it feels like. This, really, this occurrence really churns Haman's butter. Can you imagine having to honor the man that you want dead? So the time for the banquet comes, and Esther makes her request to the king. She, refe she reveals that she's a Jew, and she exposes Haman's unjust plot against her cousin and his people. And hearing this, in a crazy turn of events, the king orders that Haman receive the punishment that he originally had planned for Mordecai. Again, go back and read it, chapters 5 through 7. It's nuts. So instead of the Jewish people being wiped out, Mordecai is honored. And the Bible says that not only was there rejoicing across the empire at this news, but that many were converted to the Jewish faith because of it. 
all of that because a Jewish slave girl was put in a position of power and influence and used it at the risk of losing her life so that others could live. Now that's a great story. It's the beautiful story of what God can do when we push through our fear. Esther had a choice to make. The Bible says that when Mordecai first came to her, she hesitated. She paused. She doubted whether she could actually do anything, and she was scared about what would happen if she tried. She allowed her fear to feed her doubt. But with the help of her guide, Mordecai, with the reminder of her position and privilege, she was able to push through. She was able to push past that fear and allow her doubt to become wonder. Oh, man. Isn't that a beautiful song? The tree of life is evergreen. I don't know about you, but I need that reminder in this dormant state that we're in right now. These moments where we're waiting for warmth and light to shine through. These moments that have fear and doubt creeping in at every opportunity, making us feel like something is coming after us. I need that reminder amidst all of this, that there's something bigger at work here, that there's something bigger than me calling each of us to set aside that fear and that doubt so that wonder can take over. You see, the story of Esther, like every other great story, it's our story. We are the unlikely heroes, and each of us have been given all that we need to seize the opportunity to do incredible things in this world. If only we could see that, if only we could believe that, I wonder what could happen next. Friends, may you believe that you have a story worth sharing. And no matter how unlikely you feel you are, know that you are still the hero that God wants to do incredible things through. May you know that God has a plan to use you as a hero in the greatest story ever told. May you see yourself as capable despite the fear and the doubt and any trepidation that might creep in. May you let wonder take over. And may the tree of life that is evergreen remind you that hope is coming and new life is on its way. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Have an incredible Sunday, friends. Enjoy the sunshine.